Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season six ender of Word, we close out the year with some tough reflection. I have three adult children and two of them have had some serious addiction stuff. Plus, a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona and writer from Tucson looks forward to 2022. Whenever you expand your horizons, when you learn new things, I think that provides a feedback loop, a way of rethinking your own reality, your own local location. But first, Brad Mayhew is a former wildland firefighter, better known as a hotshot, and was the lead investigator for the 2013 Yarnell Hill Fire, in which 19 firefighters perished amid one of the country's deadliest wildfires. Mayhew still lives in Arizona, and I caught up with him recently to talk about his connection to the state and his journey to becoming a hotshot, as well as a new memoir that's on the way. I came to Arizona after living in Panama for several years. Uh, my dad was in the military, so moved to Tucson in time to finish high school there. And then um, I went to college at the University of Arizona. And while I was there, my goal, actually, I wanted to, I, I thought I wanted to maybe, you know, be Indiana Jones and study, <laughs> you know, do archaeology and history. And so I studied ancient languages and hieroglyphs and archaeology, you know, translated sections of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I I was just thrilled with that. And 9-11 happened, you know, as I was kind of getting spooled up for my last year. And uh, it made me do some soul searching about what was most important to me, how I wanted to use my, my time, my life, and ended up, you know, somehow coming up with uh, that I wanted to be a firefighter and I wanted to be a hotshot. And so that was the beginning of my fire service career. And for those who don't know, hotshots basically fly into extremely dangerous conditions, fighting wildfires. And, you know, of course, every fire has the potential for risk, but hotshots face quite a different scenario than maybe an apartment complex, for instance, or a commercial fire. Right. Hotshots specialize in wildland firefighting and they're they're 20 person crews. They work together all, all summer. You know, they reach the highest level of training that a crew can reach. And the intent is that it's, you know, it's a 20-person team that you can send out to the most complicated, difficult, tricky piece of the fire and just let them handle it. That was the intent behind developing hotshot crews initially. And one other thing is uh, there are helicopter crews that always fly or almost always fly. Hotshot crews are lucky if they can get a flight. So usually we we hike in uh, or or take a boat in or something else, some other complicated way. Yeah, so just getting to the fire itself is a logistical nightmare in many cases. And Brad, you're working on a book, Silence is Golden, and you've published some material on the topic of hot shots and specifically on the Yarnell Hill fire, which was back in 2013. For those who are listening to this program who have no connection to Arizona, it was something like a cost of over $900 million. 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots perished that summer. And you have spent a lot of time investigating that. Can you tell us a little bit about those investigations? I served as lead investigator on the Yarnell Hill Fire. 
you know, I tried to focus on making sure that our report got the essential facts down and clear and out into the world. It was done in just under three months. You know, we completed and released the report very quickly. You know, I felt that we didn't learn from the accident in the years that followed. So to provide some contrast, in 1994 uh, was a South Canyon fire where 14 firefighters lost their lives. And what followed was this full court press, this this concerted effort from so many different groups came together and said, we have to find a way to learn from this. And what it led to was this cascade of innovation. It started with something that I call human factors revolution, where a group of firefighters started to say very publicly that basically our assumption about how we work, uh, we just don't even understand how we work. We need to rethink this. And that, that one little insight, that understanding how we operate as human beings, that we had been missing that the whole time, that insight led to a whole revolution in thinking. And so there's this, what I call the human factors revolution, which led to a leadership movement and learning culture and a whole accident investigation reform effort, um, a, a different approach towards risk. I mean, it was, it was one thing after another. And I look at the era of innovation that followed South Canyon. And I think about how that has made life better for not only millions of firefighters around the world, but their families, the people that love them, the communities that they serve, you know, that, that innovation made a lot of people's lives better. And then I come to Yarnell and I go, man, what have we done to get stronger and smarter for the future? I don't have a good answer for that at the level of the profession. It's got to be extremely frustrating because I was going to ask, you know, if you had the ear of local, regional, U.S. policymakers, what do they need to understand about how to combat wildfires in the future? I mean, wildfire season seems to be a year-long event now. It does, and it seems that the operational realities of the wildland fire environment are changing. Wildland fires don't burn the same way now that they used to burn when I started, which it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's not like we're talking about, you know, fire has changed in the last hundred years. It seems like in the last 20 years, fires don't quite work the same way. You know, there's a lot more wildland urban interface. Um, that, that's one factor. There's a number of other things as well. One of the things that I discovered is there is so much knowledge and talent at the sharp end, out in the field. Right. And, and I think that gets wasted. And I think there's a lot of solutions to a lot of problems that the solutions are available within the system. I think the challenge for leaders is to learn from those who are doing the work and figure out how to put that knowledge to use for them. I see in Wildland Fire, there, there's this effort sometimes to find a grand solution, you know, a big idea from outside right. or from here or from there. And I value that. But there's also a lot of knowledge that's available within the system that just kind of gets squandered. Silence is Golden is the working title by Brad Mayhew that, quite frankly, I think probably brings to light something that a lot of people have difficulty with, and that is even in a regular work environment, the important need for communication between those who are on the front lines and those who are shaping the overall aims of whatever it might be, uh, business, government, you name it. Brad, thank you so much for coming to Word and communicating with us and our listeners. We wish you the best of luck in 2022. Thanks again, Brad. 
Likewise, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, sir. Have a good day. You can find out a bit more about Brad Mayhew and his forthcoming work, Silence is Golden, on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up on the program, more tough reflection with an Arizona poet who has a new workout soon. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Public Radio brings you vital information, and it keeps you company, whatever your day looks like. Whether you want moments of levity and joy, or the essential news of the day, stay connected at home. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest has a long-standing connection to the state, and has endured a rougher life than many, which is the topic for her new work of poetry, Blame It on the Serpent. Susan Vespoli joined me recently to talk about her life that inspired the book, which is due out soon. Well, after I discovered poetry, actually, I sold everything and lived in a cabin and went to get my MFA at, at Antioch University. So, But other than that, I, I've lived here um, since 1990. I lived in the Northwest Valley for a while um, when my kids were little, and then I, um, I live... Uh, I lived downtown for a little while in a little old house near the Coronado District. I, um, I owned a school in the Northwest Valley, a Montessori school, which is the thing I sold to go get my to pursue poetry. Um, I taught at Phoenix College after I got my MFA. So uh, and I, I've, I've traveled around. I lived part time in uh, the Tacoma, Washington area. But I have to say, I always come back. I like Arizona the best. So, What is it that draws you back? Is it the poetic landscapes here? Well, I mean, I like the openness. I like the people. I like the culture um, as far as like being close to Mexico. And uh, I like kind of open skies, big skies. And actually, you know, this is where I learned about poetry. So yes, lots of good poets here. The title of your book certainly caught my eye, Blame It on the Serpent. This is coming out January 21st, a collection of poems. Where did the title come from? Um, it actually came from one of the poems that's in the collection. And the whole collection of poems is basically about raising my children and how a couple of the, I have three adult children and two, or they're not children anymore, but two of them have had some serious addiction stuff. And so I like to say blame it on the serpent because in the answer to what happened, <laughs> you know, how could this right. happen? So, um, and also over the years, like approximately 15 years, I um, would write poems, you know, that would help me kind of reach um, understanding of what was going on. With this collection of poems, it was an attempt to figure out what happened. You know, how did my, how did my beloved couple of my beloved kids um, end up with serious addiction issues? So Blame it on the serpent. I came to believe that the serpent is addiction, you know, addiction rather than a specific person. I will say that it started out being their father, but, you know, <laughs> as I sifted through everything and took a real look at it, um, I just realized, you know, addiction is a thing. Right. You know, so. 
it's not new to so many folks and families. It's a topic that we continually hear about, specifically with the opioid crisis, still goes on today, you know, with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and all of that. Right. And it certainly affected many families here in Arizona. As far as the breadth of the book, I'm assuming that you wrote these poems over the course of several years. Yeah, multiple years. It's about 15 years of poems, which is why it was actually really, I wrote it originally. I mean, I put them together originally to try to figure it out, like what happened. And when I put them together, then you sort of see, oh, 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 you get all the pieces. It's like jigsaw puzzle where you can't figure it out when you dump it on the table, all those little pieces. But, you know, then it starts to form a picture and you go, oh, I, you know, to understand what happened, you know, kind of a timeline and who I was then, who I am now, who they were then, you know, it was helpful. So, um, and yes, the opioid epidemic, my, that's the thing with my kids as they ended up being involved in opioids. I mean, first one and then the other, and that is a tight hold. Once it gets somebody, it just, you know, it's a tough thing to get out of. You've mentioned a little bit about your educational background and your vocation as well. What do you like about poetry. You talked briefly about how you sort of found it. How did you find it? When I first came down here, I was a Montessori teacher and worked in some schools. And then I started my own school. And then I um, ended up in my mid 40s. um, And I'm in my mid 60s now, but I got cancer. And so I, my whole world kind of crashed down and I started looking at things and I ended up leaving the marriage. And well, I tried creative writing classes, meditation classes, you know, hiking groups, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm trying to be a healthier person and like therapist and everything. And I learned that, you know, everything that you squish down inside of yourself can make you sick. So I, in the creative writing class, I found ways to let my words out. And poetry was not my first love. I mean, I knew it from being a kid and I'd only heard some of the basic sing-songy kind of poems, but then I was sure. introduced Um, at Glendale Community College. I took that class and I just fell in love (laughs) with with poetry. And I ended up going away to a, like a workshop and I, you know, got introduced to a bunch of poets I had no idea about and fell in love with it. And then I ended up selling my school and going to graduate school and teaching English, but also I teach writing right now because I just think it's like such a huge thing. Having a similar background, one of the things that I love about some of the poems that I was able to read is the difference between showing and telling and how visual some of the language is in your poems. And that's a hallmark that we try to teach to students. You know, it's the art of showing something versus just telling people what happened. Right. Um, I wondered if you had a short poem that you might want to take us out with. I do. So this one is one that kind of represents the bent of the whole book. And and one thing I also say that one of the reasons I put the book together and, and write these poems too, is because the ones that have been published, I've had, I've had people who are also parents, you know, of addicted loved ones or whatever, who not feel so alone. So it's like, you know, you're not alone. You're not a bad parent, you know, things happen. So the poem is chicken. And under it, there's a little quote, the Al-Anon slogan, I didn't cause it, can't control it, can't cure it. I tried to write a poem about how the opioid epidemic had stolen one of my children, now an adult, and how it threatens like a terrorist to take another, about how there's nothing a mother can do but watch the way a body thins, how teeth dissolve, how beings disappear from behind their own eyes, the brown or green irises darkening, the eyeballs resting in more hollow sockets, But the words, lines, stanzas of my poem attempts were all failures. 
So instead, I will tell about a golden hen that appeared in my backyard like magic to stand on her four-pronged star feet, her body an oval covered with feathers, a strawberry blonde fluffy as fur, backlit by the sun. When she bent to sip water from the pale green bowl I'd placed beneath the Palo Verde tree. At first, she strutted like a little queen around the center of the grassy expanse surrounded by oleanders, sort of haughty, wide-eyed, solo. But then she began to trust me, sidling up to my ankles, saying walk, 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 like she had some news to share. And I grew to sort of love her. But then one day, as it happens, I looked for her and she was gone. Again, that poem is called Chicken. It is from Blame It on the Serpent, and it's a really tough poem, but this is a tough subject matter as well, and I'm glad you shared your experience with us, Susan. I thank you so much for coming to Word. Thank you so much. You can find out a bit more about Susan Vespoli on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up on the program, a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona and writer from Tucson looks forward to 2022. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast Go to KJZZ.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. Hi, I'm Tiara Vianne. Did you know that your smart speaker is also a radio? Just ask it to play KJZZ and you'll hear it all. While you're at home, we'll keep you company. Just say, play KJZZ. Use your voice to hear all of your favorite programs. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest of the year and this season is a planetary scientist and a creative writer to boot. Richard Lees is from Tucson and joined us earlier this year during National Poetry Month. When we began our recent conversation, I wanted to know how the long arc of the pandemic, which continues, has affected his writing, and whether he's found more time to concentrate on it as he looks back at this year and forward to the new one. That has been improving. In 2020, I didn't write very much at all, Um, but I think the new routine had kicked in by 2021. And I found more time to write and more inspiration. So the last year has been pretty good for my writing. Have you been working more on similar types of genres that you've worked on in the past, like speculative fiction? Yes. Um, In fact, this year, I wrote a lot more short stories than I ever have. But I also continue to write all kinds of poetry. We also learned the last time that you were with us that you worked for the High Rise team at the University of Arizona. Could you remind listeners what that is and what the team does in its capacity? High Rise is a camera that's in orbit around Mars on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. 
And we're um, something like 16 or 17 years into our mission and still taking um, fantastic images of the surface of Mars, returning about five to 10 or more images every day and getting those images ready for the public and the science community so we can continue to study Mars, which is such a fascinating planet. Of course, it's close to us, relatively speaking. What is it about Mars that you think fascinates not only you, but many people? I mean, Elon Musk, of course, wants to be the first human to go to Mars. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think it's the fact that it's a it's an object we can see in our sky. It has that distinctive red color. So there's long been fascination with with that world. And now with help from robots and imaging technology, we're able to take these really close-up images and, and try to understand what, what's going on on Mars in terms of geology and weather and what that might have to tell us about our own planet. I've always been an avid fan of science and space. I think sometimes people think, gosh, we have so much to concentrate on here on this planet. Why are we spending so much money in search of someplace else? How do you respond to that kind of criticism? Whenever you expand your horizons, when you learn new things, I think that provides a feedback loop, a way of rethinking your own reality, your own local location. You know, just in terms of what's happening on the earth with global warming and how we use our resources, learning about what's going on with the other planets and how they operate, how their atmospheres work can only provide us further information and insights that can help us here. Richard, you also teach workshops at the Writer's Studio in Tucson, and that was actually established back in the 80s. Can you tell us a bit about it and the focus? That's a writing school that offers workshops. It started back in New York City, but it has expanded to other chapters. One of the students, Eleanor Kedney, moved to Tucson, and that's how we ended up with a chapter of the Writer's Studio here. And we're focused on um, introducing students to uh, various elements of craft when it comes to writing poetry, creative nonfiction, and fiction. I know last year you conducted workshops and were asking folks for contributions that would help offset costs for the Tucson Poetry Festival. Are you doing that again into 2022 for the 2022 festival? Yes, we are. We actually had such a great time with the workshops in January earlier this year that we decided to make this an annual event. And so we're going to be hosting three workshops in January 2022, the last three Saturdays of the month, January 15th, 22nd, and 29th. And when is the Tucson Poetry Festival? That's being held April 22nd through 24th this year. And we have agreements from some of our featured poets who've said yes to our invitation. Um, That includes Victoria Chang, and Eleanor Kedney, who's a local Tucson poet, and T.C. Tolbert, who is also local. Oh, great. And will this be a mixture? Because I think folks have learned how to balance this. Will this be a mixture of in-person and then sort of Zoom or teleconferencing-related events? That's what we're hoping for. The last two years, we held the event 
strictly online. This year, we're looking for open air venues um, that can safely accommodate um, in-person events, but we'll also have an online component. And we also hope to live stream any of our in-person events. Well, Richard, I wondered if you would take us out with a short reading of your own. Sure. Be glad to. Uh, In August, I had a poem published in Impossible Archetype, issue 10. And so I'll read that now. The title is, I can't explain love or loss if the only language I have is geology or what I watch on YouTube. The couple quit uploading to YouTube two years ago. Their videos are something pitiful and earnest now, something long buried, sand scratched, rubbed raw, thumbs down, I think, none of my business. Who knows why relationships don't last? I search for more info, find other platforms long abandoned, new platforms populated with recent videos, but separately, apart. Everything they leave is what's new, new friends, new adventures, new love, something neither recorded, anything about their side of the breakup. They have left a big gap at the end for my romantic notions to get into, the specific location in my body for the hurt, hurdles, hollows of my empathy is something I have not discovered. Volcano webcams make me something of an expert in other places, something about new land sputtering out on top of old. Breakups feel hard as stone. In my stomach, small tumbler, a single polished and precise mass prevents me from breathing. This is not my breakup body. Why did I unsubscribe? I hit the notification button to wait for something that explains what has gone wrong, something they are never together again to record and post, neither willing to go back for me. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading that. I think that is the longest title I've ever heard for a poem. I love these long titles. They can act like a first line. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking as well. And such a strong narrative voice in that. And I like the sort of voyeuristic aspect of it. I mean, we've all gone down the rabbit hole with YouTube videos, right? Yeah, the way we get connected and and feel for other people. I was kind of surprised by that reaction in myself and, and decided to write about it. Well, Richard Lees, who is an author and poet of many works, you can find them widely available online. We call them friends when they come back to the show. We want to thank you so much for coming back to us, Richard, and talking about the upcoming Tucson Poetry Festival next year and all the great things that you've been doing. Thanks again, Richard. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. You too. And thus we come to another season and year-ending episode of Word. We appreciate your support for KJZZ original programming, award-winning news, information, and entertainment that we provide via multiple platforms. If you're already a member of KJZZ, thanks very much. If not, consider a gift of $10, $20, or maybe $50 a month. Just go to KJZZ.org and click on the Donate button. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word?
Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.